It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is KSL's Religion Today, a weekly look at religion and spirituality here at home and around the world. Now, here's your host, Martin Tanner, on KSL News Radio. Welcome. This is Religion Today. I'm your host, Martin Tanner. I'm excited to have in studio someone that I have known for a long, long time, off and on, Don Bradley. He and I first ran into each other over at another radio station, clear back in the early 90s, and also had some discussions about the Book of Mormon content and, and a whole bunch of things. Thank you for being here today. It's a pleasure to have you. I'm happy to be here, Martin. Thank you. You should also know that Don has been a researcher for a long, long, long time. One, <laughs> one of my other good friends, Van Hale, has sort of uh, frequented the church archives for decades and decades, and he would often run into into Don there. At, and so a serious researcher. And also, I guess I should point out that you have a master's from Utah State, you have a bachelor's degree from, from BYU, and so right. research is a huge part of your life, and you've researched other books for other people, like Brian Hill's polygamy effort, which is fabulous. Oh, thank you, yeah. So I started doing research at the church archives when I was 17, and so Van used to run into me there <laughs> and try to, because I was researching controversial topics and so on, he tried to give me a level head. Um, and then, yeah, I did uh, for two years, I worked pretty solidly gathering uh, sources on Joseph Smith's polygamy for Brian Hales and then did subsequent work for him. I've done an internship with the Joseph Smith papers, been working for a long time on Joseph Smith. So I consider myself... Um, Sort of a Joseph Smithologist. That's great. That's a, that's a great way to describe you. We are here today to talk about a book that you wrote a couple of years ago that I just go back to over and over again. It's called The Lost 116 Pages, Reconstructing the Book of Mormon's Missing Stories. Yes. Now, if you haven't seen this, you should go get a copy. It's at Deseret Book. You can find it on Amazon. And I remember when I first heard about this, I thought, wait a minute, the 116 pages were lost. How are you going to come up with what's in something that's been lost? But you have done a remarkable job of that and also adding other information about the translation process and sort of rehabilitating the image of of Martin Harrison and his wife. Why don't we start off with that story about Martin Harris and his wife? Okay, sure. So the the book is divided into two parts. So first part I like to call the history of the lost pages and the second part the history in the lost pages. So the history of the lost pages, this would be what do we know about the coming forth of those pages? Who how the how were they translated? Who were the scribes for the translation? How and why was Martin Harris so persistent in you know insisting that he needed to borrow the manuscript? 
And then what happened in the theft, right? Like what do the sources tell us? And one of the fascinating things that emerges from this research is that a very common story is actually very doubtful. And this story is that Martin Harris's wife, Lucy Harris, stole the manuscript of the 116 pages and burned it. And what I found in examining this story is I lined it first. I li- I took the forty some odd sources that I could find about the manuscript theft. I lined them up in chronological order, and I found some really shocking things. So I was first. I was surprised to find that the story that Lucy Harris burned the manuscript first appears about a quarter of a century after the manuscript disappeared, and that's that's kind of late, right? And then that story goes from a speculation the first time it's mentioned to a few years later being something that's described as definite. And then the further you get in time from the manuscript theft, the more people tell this story. And so as a historian, that's exactly the opposite of what I want to see. I want to see what were they saying close to the event. But this story becomes popular long after the event because the image of the disgruntled wife throwing those pages into the flames is just (laughs) – you can picture that, right? it's, It's an image that really sticks. So one of the things that really called that narrative into question also is I have a journal source that had never been used prior to my using it in this book. So there's the journal of this guy with a great name, William Wallace White. Uh, he heard Martin Harris Jr., Martin Harris's son, give an account of the translation of the Book of Mormon and the theft of the manuscript. And he says that his father, Martin Harris, said he had initially suspected his wife of taking the manuscript, not of burning it. He didn't think she burned it. He thought she hid it. But uh, he initially suspected her, but then on her deathbed, she died young in uh, at the age of 40. Uh, on her deathbed, she denied knowing anything about what had happened to the manuscript. Lucy Harris was a devout Quaker. Uh, and, and as a devout Quaker, you are not supposed to lie. You are not supposed to take oaths because everything you say is supposed to be as if you're under oath. And so the idea that Lucy Harris, as she's going to meet God, would have lied about this seems really difficult to believe. Martin found it very difficult to believe. And after that point, he stopped believing that his wife had anything to do with the manuscript theft. So um, I think we can trust Martin Harris's judgment there. He, he and his wife were estranged. <laughs> if he thought she wouldn't go to God with this lie on her lips, then I think that's probably the case. So she likely did not steal the manuscript. Let's talk about another sort of myth about the 116 pages, and that is sort of the assumption that everybody makes that they would have been on eight and a half by 11 sheets, <laughs> which they were not. Talk to people about how big fool's cap paper is because it's enormous and about your good estimates about how much was actually lost because it's quite a bit. Yeah, it is. Now, I, offhand here, I'm forgetting how – I'm forgetting the dimensions of fool's cap. It's about 17 um, by 13. 17 it's, by it's, 13, it's, yeah. it's a little bigger than two eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper. I mean it's more than twice the size. Yeah, yeah it's, so it's, it's giant, right? And so uh, when we're talking about the 116 pages, we're talking about pages of exceptional size. But um, there's also indication from Martin Harris's brother that the manuscript may have been longer than 116 pages. So Martin Harris had a brother 
Emer Harris, who is a direct ancestor of Dallin Harris Oaks. And uh, Emer said in a state conference in Utah that Martin had scribed for nearly 200 pages, in his words, of the lost manuscript. So if it was only 116 pages, how could Martin have written nearly 200 pages of it? And then when you look at what time period the lost pages covered, the lost pages were replaced by the small plates. We see in the Book of Mormon that the small plates cover the first four and a half centuries of Nephite history. So the lost pages would have covered four and a half centuries. If you look at the total length of Mormon's abridgment, of which the lost pages, Joseph Smith said the lost pages were part, if you look at the total length of those lost uh, of Mormon's abridgment, it's about 900 years down to the time of Mormon's own youth. 450 years is half of 900 years. So we are missing the first half of Mormon's abridgment. So we shouldn't underestimate how much we're missing. We're, we're missing quite a bit, right? And this, this actually, Martin, this was one of the things that got me started in this project originally because I wanted to better understand the Book of Mormon text that we have and I realized that in order to understand the text that we have, I needed to know more about what we don't have. So if you take any book, you tear out the first half, and then you just provide, you know, someone provides you with a thumbnail sketch of the first half, you're not going to catch everything in the second half that you otherwise would have. And so the more we can figure out about what was in those lost pages, the more we can better understand the Book of Mormon text we have. I'm speaking today, and it's a great pleasure, with Don Bradley, who's a historian. He's written a book called The Lost 116 Pages. The subtitle is Reconstructing the Book of Mormon's Missing Stories. And and it's amazing how much of that you, you have done. It's, it's, it's quite phenomenal. When we come back, more about the actual contents of what was lost and maybe a few stories about – other things like what Joseph Smith Sr. has to say about the contents and, and why we would, of course, trust him more, more than some other people. This is Religion Today. I'm Martin Tanner with historian Don Bradley and author Don Bradley about the lost 116 pages. Stay tuned. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Religion Today with host Martin Tanner continues on KSL News Radio. We're back. This is our second segment of Religion Today. I'm Martin Tanner. If you have a question about this program or any other religious question, send me an email to martinstanner at gmail.com. I'll be happy to respond. And again, if you're just joining us, Don Bradley, 
Elias Historian in studio with me to talk about his wonderful book, The Lost 116 Pages. Let's talk about Joseph Smith Sr. He has a lot about the contents, the actual contents, yeah. the subject matter of, of The Lost 116 Pages. you want to sure. touch lightly on that? Yeah. So one common question, and you raised this in uh, earlier, Martin, is how can you reconstruct – how can you write a book about a missing book? Come on, right? Like, <laughs> And um, well, uh, I was actually surprised to find how much material I was able to find. So there are two types of evidence for what was in the lost pages. There's internal evidence. So this means what's in the Book of Mormon text that we have. Since the small plates of the Book of Mormon replace the lost pages, they give us the thumbnail sketch, the, the sort of narrative skeleton of what was in those lost pages. Then we have sometimes narrative flashbacks later in Mormon's abridgment to events that are not in our Book of Mormon text, like in Alma 10, he talks about Aminadi having interpreted the writing that was on the wall of the temple generations earlier. This would have been during the period of Nephi's temple in the Lost Pages. So, so this gives us a flashback. Then we have source external sources. So we have pe- things that people said outside of the text of the Book of Mormon that we have. And this would include some of Joseph Smith's early revelations, allude to things in the Lost Pages. Uh, uh, Martin Harris's brother, Emer Harris, said some things about the Mulekites from the Lost Pages that we don't otherwise have. And then uh, – and there are others. Joseph Smith even said some things. But particularly Joseph Smith's father, Joseph Sr., said quite a bit. He gave an interview in 1830 where he talked about – um, the contents of the – we talked about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon and he talked about the contents of the Book of Mormon. And he gave details that we can verify about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon from other sources. And in talking about the contents of the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith Sr. gave some of the familiar narratives of the Book of Mormon, like about Lehi going out in the wilderness, Nephi going back to get the brass plates – but he adds details to some of these narratives. So he, for instance, says the reason Laban was drunk in the street was it was – there was a Jewish festival going on at the time. And if you look at the text, the text of the Book of Mormon we have doesn't say this, but it fits with this. It tells us things like Laban was out by night among the elders of the Jews. And so this was – he wasn't just out with drinking buddies. This was something bigger than that, right? <laughs> So I argue in the book, I, I pull together different clues from inside the text, from outside the text, put them together like puzzle pieces, and I argue that that festival was Passover, that the Book of Mormon actually began at Passover reflecting that the, the Lamb of God would come to save the world. And so the Book of Mormon opens with this messianic theme about Christ uh, at Passover. Well, then Justice Smith Sr. also gives a story about the, how the Nephites got the interpreters, the, the Book of Mormon Urim and Thummim. So scholars have pointed out that the Book of Mormon tells us how the Jaredites got the interpreters, but it never says how the Nephites got them. Well, this makes sense because the first people that it suggests had the interpreters, uh, like like King Mosiah I, who interprets this Jaredite stone record brought to him, uh, their full stories were in the Lost Pages. So the reason we would not have the story of the Nephites getting the interpreters in our Book of Mormon text is it was in the lo- in those Lost Pages. So he tells this narrative where they're, after they had settled in the New World, they are being led by the Liahona on an exodus again, and the exodus leads them to an object. And the guy who finds the object, he doesn't know what it is, what it's for. They have a tabernacle, portable temple. He takes it into that tabernacle 
And the voice of the Lord asks him from behind the veil, what is that in your hand? And he says, he did not know, but had come to inquire, which at the time that I read that really popped out to me, right? Yes, yes, it just it. sounded familiar. Um, should the temple goers, yes. <laughs> and so um, he put the uh, object on his face. He was told by the Lord, cover your face in an animal skin. And he did, and he could see anything. It was the interpreters. Now, by the way, this led me to look into, we have the accounts of Joseph Smith putting the seeing instrument into his hat, well, he translates, this led me to look into what Joseph Smith's hat was made of. It was made of beaver skin. Ah, okay? interesting. <laughs> so there's a parallel there. Um, it turns out that there are a lot of things that we can piece together about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon and the content of the Lost Pages that point to temple themes. So Joseph Smith Sr. also indicates that, quote-unquote, Masonic emblems like the compass and square were on the top plate of the golden plates that the interpreter sat on top of. And then that when the interpreters were used to translate, Joseph and Martin hung a veil between the two of them. Joseph would speak the words of the translation. Martin would repeat them back to Joseph to make sure they were correct. And then Joseph would verify them. And so you, you've got temple themes running all throughout and in fact, Martin, at the time that I uh, was doing some of this research, I actually was outside the church. I had had a, a huge faith crisis. I had left the church for several years, and my research ended up le- helping to lead me back to the church uh, as I was seeing, for instance, that the the temple endowment, which Joseph doesn't institute till 1842, is already there in the Book of Mormon. I was quite shocked, and it had a big impact on me. That's a Great story. During our last several minutes here, let's talk about the information that we get from interviews done by a guy named Fayette Lapham. There's some cool stuff that you've uncovered here that tells us about some of the contents or or whatever else you want. Sure. So, um, I mean, Fayette Lapham is the guy who did the Joseph Smith Senior interview. So that in that in that case, you've got. Him talking about the how Laban was drunk because of a feast, right? Which then, you know, other clues in the Book of Mormon enable us to identify with Passover. You've got the finding of the interpreters. You have him mentioning also that while Lehi was traveling in the wilderness, that they set up a sort of tabernacle, right? So the tabernacle, of course, originally back in the the Book of Mormon, scholars have pointed out for a long time, the Book of Mormon has a lot of echoes of the Exodus. Yes. Right. The Exodus theme plays out over and over in the Book of Mormon. So Lehi is being led by the Lord to a new promised land. Well, originally there was an Exodus, right, that Moses led to a promised land. Um, So Lehi is a sort of new Moses. Well, during the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, they had a portable temple. They had a tabernacle that was where they had worshipped. And in uh, Lapham's account of you know, what was in the Book of Mormon, according to Joseph Smith Sr., they had talked about this Lehi having a tabernacle as well. So originally, Lehi leaves Jerusalem. He just has an altar of stones. And then he, you know, later he has a tabernacle. And then they get to the New World and they build a temple. It's actually sort of reenacting the development of the temple in the Hebrew Bible, where early, the early patriarchs, they just had altars of stones. Then they have, you know, under Moses and the Exodus, they have the tabernacle. Then under Solomon, they have a temple. So you have in the Book of Mormon, in what we can know about its lost pages, you have really the history of the Nephites kind of replaying or reenacting 
the history, larger history of the House of Israel. Or, or kind of a parallel rendition of a, of a similar theme. One of the things I wanted to point out or, or bring out about um, Fayette Lapham is that his interviews were in 1830. This is not some late reminisce. This is, this is right after the translation happened. And, and the idea here is that while Joseph Smith was doing the translation, he shared some of the contents with other people. Right, exactly, right. And Fayette Lapham, interestingly, we can verify some of the things that he says from other people. So, for instance, um, it's only been so, – so for for decades and decades, scholars had a question. When Justice Smith lost the manuscript, 116 pages, um, how – Immediately did he replace that? Did he immediately go back and translate the replacement, the small plates, or did he pick up the translation where he left off, translate to the end, and then translate the small plates? Well, uh, modern scholarship shows that he translated to the end of Moroni and then translated the small plates. That's what Fayette Lapham said they did. So modern scholarship has backed up Fayette Lapham's account. Very cool. It has been a delight to have you here, Don. I hope we can do it again and maybe follow up on some of these themes. If you are interested, you should get this wonderful book, The Lost 116 Pages, by my guest, Don Bradley. Thank you so much. Thank you. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.